The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back to another State House Takeout coming to you over Zoom from room 458 of the Massachusetts State House and diverse other places depending on uh, what districts uh, Katie Lannon and Matt Murphy are currently in. But uh, Katie and Matt join us for a little reporters roundtable this Friday. Hi, guys. Undisclosed bunker, Sam. Now I'm embarrassed. I don't know my district number. I'm in the the something Middlesex. Hmm. (laughs) Matt, you're in Middlesex, right? I am currently coming to you from Paul Donato country where we have an interesting primary uh, coming up on September 1st. Oh, that's right. That's right. And we've got a primary over here in Christine Barber country as well. So, Yes, two incumbents getting challenged from the left. Hmm, interesting. Um, well, uh, uh, folks, this week, uh, a lot of folks are wondering not just what district they're in, not just what their district number is, but are they in a red town or a green town or a yellow town? Um <laughs> A lot of attention is turning to infection rates at the municipal level of COVID-19 as local school districts are starting to look at their options for the fall with proposals actually uh, due today. Right, Katie? Yeah, they should be kind of uh, well past the point of starting to look at their options for, for fall at this point. And, you know, maybe in some cases we're talking just a couple of weeks away that uh, classes will be resuming, whether it's in person, in all remote, like like our podcast is, um, or a hybrid model. I guess this is technically a hybrid podcast since you, Sam, are physically in the state house. Hmm, good point. Matt, you covered the uh, governor's press conference on Tuesday where he unveiled this color-coded stoplight map of Massachusetts. Um, run us through that a little bit and, and, and how often it's going to update and what sort of metrics are determining if you live in a go zone or a red zone. Yeah, sort of a a change in strategy here from the Baker administration that we saw this week where uh, throughout the pandemic, they've been taking uh, this statewide approach to guidance uh, and leaving a lot of decisions up to local communities. But uh, guidances have generally been statewide, whether it's been business shutdowns uh, as we progress through the reopening phases, uh, mask guidances, social uh, distancing, gathering size limits have been statewide. Uh, this week, we saw them shift to a more targeted approach to kind of pinpoint these hotspots uh, that they're seeing in specific communities around the state. And they did this by publishing a map, and they're tracking the public health data by community and the infection rates by community and assigning everyone a color. So if you're a white community, uh, the virus is basically non-existent uh, in your town, uh, virtually. I mean, this would mean you've reported less than five new cases uh, over the past two weeks. Uh, if you're green, it means you have uh, fewer than four new daily cases reported on average over the past two weeks per 100,000 people in your community. And this, uh, the governor said, is a benchmark that's being used uh, pretty much around the country by states uh, as a way to track transmission, this number of daily cases per 100,000 people 
with four being uh, the, the target goal there. Once you start getting above four and you're between four and eight, you could be a yellow community. Or if you're above eight daily cases uh, per 100,000 people, you were assigned the worst at-risk category of red. And we have 11 communities. It actually started out with just four when the governor rolled this out on Tuesday. Everett, Chelsea, Revere, and Lynn. Uh, a number of uh, communities were added to that in Wednesday's first update. So we're up to 11 red communities and the state intends to update this uh, weekly so that people can uh, look at their own communities, look at where they shop, look at where they work uh, and make decisions about uh, where they're going, what precautions they're taking uh, and, and what they need to do to control the spread of the virus. Yeah, we actually heard from one friend of the takeout the other day and his uh, his daughter wanted to go get ice cream in another town and uh, the wife said, uh, that's the red zone, that's no go, we, we, we're not going over there. Um, uh, so Katie, how, how might this be uh, further affecting small businesses during the pandemic? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, if, you're, if your decision is between you know, if you're equidistant between two of anything, if you're, you might be looking at these kind of metrics as a way to like, well, if this town's green, you know, maybe I'll do my shopping there instead of driving the other way and going into a, a red one. And, but it's really interesting because, you know, based on the, it's all based on population size, right? So you have uh, communities falling into different categories based on case numbers that are very different on the ground, you know, in, in Lawrence, for example, a city a little bit on the larger side compared to some of the small towns, it's, you know, 105 cases in a two-week period that puts you into the red. But if you look at Granby, which came into the red in the update, tiny town out west, that has seven cases. Um, so because it's all population-based, it doesn't, you know, it's a useful metric, right? It, it certainly gives you an idea of the prevalence, but it it can mean a few different things. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how people interpret this. If people are looking at the colors, if people are looking at positive rates, it's another, you know, I think we all have so many new things to consider now as we make decisions like, do I want to go out and get ice cream? Do I want to order takeout? Um, listening to the takeout at least should remain an easy decision. You can do that anywhere, even if you're a, a green or a red or a white. But um, <laughs> it's it's another thing to kind of balance out there as people are trying to make make their choices about what um, what level of risk they feel comfortable taking on. Yeah, Matt, the uh, the governor on Tuesday opined that if you're a white town or a green town, uh, you're pretty much good to go as far as uh, school reopenings, full time or, or or hybrid, right? Yeah, well, this uh, new color-coded system definitely wound up over the course of this week more and more feeding into this uh, sort of still raging debate about whether or not students should be going back to school uh, in September. And uh, you're right, the governor on Tuesday when he announced this plan got asked about schools, and he said uh, that he could not imagine uh, a scenario under which you were a green or a white community and... Uh, you were not uh, returning in some form to in-person instruction in the fall, be that a full in-person model or some sort of hybrid where students cycle through 
uh, a couple days of week. He felt that uh, in-person learning was that important uh, at the start of a school year. Uh, he said when uh, classes are starting, uh, students don't know their teachers, teachers don't know their students, that it's too difficult to transition uh, to do uh, completely remotely, especially when you're talking about teaching young kids things like how to read. And so he felt like if you were meeting these uh, infection rate benchmarks, these sort of thresholds, uh, and had relatively low transmission, uh, that there was no reason you shouldn't be uh, thinking about or leaning towards returning back to school uh, in some form in person. And um, Katie, I, she wound up covering uh, later in the week uh, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education uh, almost codifying this into their guidance for school districts as they were submitting their final plans. Yeah, they, they really um, use that kind of traffic light system to, you know, red is hybrid, green is green is back in the classroom with, you know, with extenuating circumstances really allowed to, to play into your decisions. And I actually, I live in a community that, that falls into one of the ones that the governor said he couldn't imagine. Somerville is a, a green city on the, on the new system and the local officials here have said they're starting the school year fully remotely. And, uh, you know, I'm really interested to see how this kind of plays out as schools do start finalizing their plans as the, the first day of school gets inches ever closer. Here we are in mid-August. Um, but, you know, where where districts do decide to do something different. In Somerville, they've talked about, you know, the ventilation systems in the buildings and wanting to develop a, a surveillance plan. And Somerville's been generally more cautious, a uh, little slower moving through reopening than the rest of the state. And you have Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who uh, whose city is yellow in the new system. He, he said this week that Boston is pretty much going to be stricter than the state on on whatever it, it does with schools. They're, they're thinking about maybe a, a so-called hopscotch model where you have kids going back and forth between remote and in-person. So, you know, I, I think we're going to have to keep an eye on how these new categories ultimately play into the, the decision-making process and what schools start doing. We're also seeing schools do a, a kind of a blend within districts themselves. I was on a call uh, with uh, Cape Cod officials this week, uh, and they were talking about how the majority of their schools were looking at some sort of hybrid model. The virus seemingly very much under control uh, on the Cape, uh, under the new system, entirely white on Cape Cod, except for uh, uh, Barnstable, which includes Hyannis and Falmouth, which are in the green category. So that would suggest going back to school. But uh, we saw some districts like Dennis Yarmouth come out this week and say that for K-7, they were going to prioritize in-person learning. But for the high school, uh, presumably where you have kids moving classes during the day, uh, they were going to look at a more hybrid system. So uh, even within districts, uh, people are making different decisions based on age groups and how you can separate classes. Yeah, uh, and and what time today are, uh, are those proposals uh, due into the board, Katie? Wow, putting me on the spot there. I assume it's a, a close of business situation, but um, I don't know. I guess I'll be refreshing the DESE website throughout the day, seeing what happens. But we've been seeing, you know, a lot of school committees making their decisions refreshingly. Those plans were originally envisioned as being turned in by Monday, but a lot of school committees hadn't met by that point. Um, so they, they gave everyone a little bit more time to finalize it. And 
the, the districts do have to submit models for all three plans. And one of the things that came out in the, in the new guidance this week, that kind of traffic light guidance from the, the education department was the idea that, you know, this is a brand new system, this color-coded risk assessment. And maybe while the, the department wants schools basing their decisions, at least in part on this, maybe they want to wait till there's a, a couple weeks more data um, so they can see trends, they can, you know, make sure a, a red category wasn't a one-off or a green category wasn't a, a one-off and be, be ready to switch between models or adapt their plans as needed. So I think, you know, whatever gets turned in today um, or has already been turned in won't necessarily be the, the final be all and end all like everything else uh, this year. I think we're going to see some, some need to be flexible and rethink based on information. And that's kind of the argument the, the teachers unions have been making too, is like, let's not, you know, let's see how things go a little bit, learn a little bit more, start remotely. And then once we know more about the virus, um, kind of the theme of the year, once we know more about the virus, um, then we can make a call. But, it's, you know, there's still a lot that's unknown. And once the kids are back, if they come back, what to do about sports, what to do about after-school programs. And uh, there was some more guidance this week from a different secretariat from Energy and Environmental Affairs uh, that covers uh, the risk categories for different uh, youth sports activities, right? Um, what what activities, what sports are more likely to come back? And then are there are there some that just aren't feasible because of COVID? So the these guidelines are are pretty dense. Um, there's a lot worked in there. There's three different uh, risk levels for sports and four different categories of play. You know, ranging from kind of individual drills to full tournaments. Um, so it's it's a multi-pronged kind of, you got to do a little bit of calculus, I guess, to, to figure out your specific event. But, um, you know, at the, at the kind of lower risk end of the spectrum, once again, a, a green category, you have sports like golf, where it's maybe more, you know, it's more individual. There's not a lot of close contact. I mean, if at all, there shouldn't really be any close contact in golf if you're playing it correctly. Um but at the other end, you have things like football, ice hockey, wrestling, where... There's a lot of contact in wrestling. Yeah, typically. Again, if you're playing it right or performing it correctly. Um, and for, for those kind of close contact sports, there's a, a, a system under which if they're going to have practices, if they're going to have games they have to do so with modifications. And those modifications include things like eliminating close contact, um, eliminating deliberate close contact. You might have to wear a mask and a face off, or you would have to wear a, a, a mask and a face mask. You would have to wear a mask and a face off um, to kind of lower the risk level there or in incidental co close contact. You know, there's a lengthy description in there about in those guidelines about how if you were playing soccer when you could lower your mask and when you'd have to put it back on because um, they also take into account that a lot of these have high intensity kind of cardio involved and you might not be 
able to wear a mask the same way you would if you were, you know, sitting on the bench. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see what these guidelines actually mean. The MIAA is going to make some decisions about how it plans to handle the fall sports season because these are these rules do apply to K to 12 athletics. And I, I don't know, some of them, I, we were talking about this earlier, and I just don't know how you eliminate contact from football or wrestling for that matter. Um, you know, they put martial arts in that category and you could do, you could kind of shadow box instead of a, a close contact sparring. But some of these, it's going to be hard to see how, how this is going to work out if it's going to work out. Sure. Sure. Um, all right. As we look ahead to next week, um, we've got a very different sort of uh, democratic national convention than we're used to. Uh, Matt, uh, a lot of times uh, the news service sends sends reporters out there for these huge jamborees of delegates, and uh, we follow the uh, follow the Massachusetts delegation around and so forth. But uh, sounds like the the localized version of the DNC is going to be a, a drive-in movie theater up in East Boston. Yeah, that's right, Sam. We didn't have to make the the decision this year about whether or not to go to Milwaukee uh, because there was no controversy around the DNC. The party uh, turned the convention this year into a totally virtual event. Uh, presumptive nominee Joe Biden won't even be in Wisconsin. He will be accepting the party's nomination next Thursday night uh, remotely. So all of these speeches are going to be remote. And you're right, the uh, summer screen at Suffolk Downs will play host on Wednesday to a big evening for Massachusetts uh, when Elizabeth Warren will be addressing the convention. And uh, while she uh, does have the Wednesday night speaking slot, it was not maybe uh, the uh, speaking slot that some of her supporters were hoping this week after Joe Biden selected Kamala Harris uh, as his running mate. So uh, Elizabeth Warren passed over after this lengthy Veep stakes uh, by Biden and his team she was uh, one of the women that was vetted thoroughly uh, by the Biden campaign, uh, but ultimately he went with uh, Harris, a, a historic choice who will be the first uh, black woman uh, to be put on a major party ticket uh, for president. Uh, and so uh, Harris will be accepting the nomination Wednesday night, uh, along with uh, speeches from Warren, uh, former President Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the Massachusetts delegates who were hoping at one point in time to be congregating and partying uh, in Milwaukee, uh, have been invited to watch the events uh, take place uh, at Suffolk Downs on the big screen. Uh, and uh, some members of the public are also able to go if they uh, contribute uh, and buy some limited tickets. So uh, a different sort of event this year. Feels like higher odds of a uh, Bailey appearance though, if Elizabeth Warren is doing her speech virtually. It's a great question. I don't know. Well, exactly right. I don't know uh, yet where Warren will be giving her speech from, if she'll be in Cambridge at her home or somewhere else. But uh, certainly Bailey could make a Zoom appearance, and I'm sure people are hoping for it. Bailey, of course, being the senator's. Uh, yeah. 
I believe he is a golden retriever. Yes. Uh, a couple of years old now and a, a star of the campaign trail while she was uh, still running. I think his selfie lines were uh, perhaps longer than hers. So, <laughs> And he's also something of a social media maven, I think. So I'm sure he would be happy to Zoom bomb. Um, well, folks, thanks very much for catching us up on some of the stuff that happened this week. Uh, and there's a whole lot more at statehousenews.com. And, you know, we got through a whole podcast without talking about the legislature. I suppose we should mention that they're on something of a traditional August recess this month, but there is still a lot of busy work going on behind the scenes as they try to chip away at some uh, negotiations on major bills like policing reform, climate change, um, health care, etc., etc. So uh, I suppose one of those um, compromise bills could pop at any time, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, if and uh, if if you're going out to the beach this weekend, I guess check and see if it's a red town. But then also, uh, you might want to beach well, beach well, beach well, beach, beach well. well, beach well. Cape Cod officials are advising people to beach well. Some concern on the Cape, especially uh, this summer, which has been brutally hot. I have to say. Uh, people flocking to the beaches. Some uh, town managers on the Cape worry that their beaches are getting overcrowded. So they're launching a beach well campaign, reminding people to uh, socially distance, keep your beach blankets 12 feet apart from other groups, uh, and check the tides, they say, uh, before you go. Three hours before or after high tide, the best time to be on the Cape Cod beaches. More sand, more ability to space out, uh, and still plenty of sun to enjoy. So uh, beach well, Sam and Katie. Beach, beach, <laughs> beach well, beach well. Beach well. <laughs> See you next week. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.